pray. Dearly Father, we come to you with open minds and open hearts. Lord, as we hear your word, I pray that you bridge the mind between our minds and our hearts. That you would make us one in our hearing, and not only in our hearing, but in our doing. That your word would transform us and your spirit would move mightily as we receive it. It's the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. I grew up watching the Andy Griffith show. As part of the DNA of my family. And it didn't matter what time of day it was, what we were doing, or how many hundreds of times we had seen an episode, we were going to watch it if it was on. And for those who don't know what it is, it's a show set in a small town called Mayberry in North Carolina in the early 60s. It follows the exploits of the sheriff Andy, his uh, kind but simple deputy Barney, and a cast of colorful rural folk as they go about their quiet lives. It's a heartwarming show full of character lessons and relatable situations. And in my preparation of today's text, I was reminded of an episode called Barney and the Choir. It was a favorite of my family. And I'll read you the synopsis I found online. Barney fancies himself a singer. And when he offers his services as a tenor to the Mayberry Choir Master, the man gladly accepts. Everyone else is aghast, however, because they know something he doesn't. Barney is the closest thing to tone deaf that there is. His shrieking strikes a discordant note with all the members of the choir and disrupts their rehearsals. With an important concert coming up, Andy comes up with an idea. Tell Barney he's going to be a soloist, but have him speak rather than sing his part. Barney likes the soloist part, but insists on singing. So Andy has to go to plan B, which involves convincing Barney that he has to adapt his voice to a newfangled soloist's microphone. So that's the setup. Yikes. The real rub here is that the soloist's microphone is actually a muted mic and that the real soloist is standing behind the curtain. Barney has no idea. He unknowingly mouths the words while the boomy bass of the actual soloist is piped through the speaker. It's a really funny scene. And it's outrageous as only a TV show can be. And of course, it goes off without a hitch. But it always left me with questions. Was that the right thing to do? Was it the loving thing to do? See, Andy had the knowledge that Barney was a terrible singer, but should he have lied like that to preserve his friend's feelings? It's a bit of a gray area. Today's text deals with a much different and decidedly more serious situation. As good as it is, the Andy Griffith show can't really even come close. But the Corinthian church is asking Paul a similar question that I was of the episode. What are we supposed to do in the gray areas of life? Now, let's be honest, eating food and meat offered to idols doesn't necessarily seem like a gray area to our modern ears. In fact, I would venture to say that it isn't even an area at all, let alone a gray one. So what's the big deal? Why should we care? Thank you for asking. You see, these Corinthian Christians were the first of their kind in their hometown of Corinth. This is the early church in every sense of the word. No one yet had familial squatting rights on pews in church, nor decades of experience in potluck etiquette. 
The faith simply wasn't old enough for that. These are people figuring it all out for the first time, and sometimes that made things messy. Many of these Corinthians had very recently been pagans, people who worshiped false gods made of wood and stone and clay. And just as Christian faith has certain rituals and procedures to be a believer, so too did these other faiths. First Corinthians, the book we're studying today, has quite a bit to say to these new Christians about worship practices and how to live faithfully in their new faith. They knew how to be pagans, but they needed some serious help in learning how to be Christians. Paul is able to knock out a few softball Christian ethics early in this letter, defining the role of Christ in the life of a Christian, the dangers of sexual misconduct, the problems that arise from division and lawsuits, to name a few. Until this point, he was defining very black and white issues that Christians should be aware of. Things that we might take for granted 2,000 years later, but were new concepts to these believers. At last, he comes to food or meat offered to idols. Not so black and white, gray, unclear, what to do. For further context as to the, the, the dilemma at hand here, Paul explains that eating the food offered to idols is not a sin. God is the one true God who created all things, food included. These idols that the food comes in the name of are nothing, meaningless icons of wood, stone, and dirt. Offering food to them is like offering it to a tree. It doesn't taint the food or change its nature at all. It's food. If I take a bag of hot Cheetos and offer it to the God of Beaver Lake, it's still a bag of Cheetos, just a little bit more soggy. Eat it or don't, Paul says. We are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. But here's the kicker. For some of these new Christians in Corinth, eating that idol offered food reminded them of their time as pagans. And not only that, but it reminded them that they once believed these fake gods to be real gods. The text seems to insinuate that this is a temptation for some of these people, almost like an addict being pulled in a position that might trigger their addiction once again. To even further complicate matters, some Christians had no problem with eating the idle food at all. Food's food, let's eat. They understood what Paul was saying and that food is neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. Well, suddenly it's no longer about the personal act of eating the food but more about how that action affects others in the community. It's not a here problem. It's a here problem. Don't be a stumbling block, Paul warns. So should those who are okay with eating the food eliminate it from their diet to not tempt their brothers and sisters? Should those who have a problem work simply on overcoming it? Is it contextual? What do you do with gray areas? I was thinking about something like this the other day. You guys remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the one directed by Mel Gibson about the crucifixion of Jesus? Boy, it's violent, isn't it? Long, lingering shots of Jesus being tortured, beaten, and crucified. I looked up the movie's runtime, and it's a little over two hours long, 127 minutes to be exact. 127 minutes of some really challenging viewing. I remember when it came out, there were sort of two camps in the church, those that insisted on the importance of watching it 
despite its maturity, and those that felt the violence was too much, even for a movie about Jesus. And really, there's no right or wrong answer here, is there? It's a movie about Jesus and his incredible sacrifice for our sins, but it's also really disturbing, both in its violence and having to bear witness to the kind of suffering that Jesus underwent, even knowing it's just a movie. I have a friend whose congregation really wrestled with whether it was appropriate to show the film on its campus or if it should only be viewed in the home and in the movie theater. Another gray area. That's just one specific example, but I know all of us in here can come with all sorts of gray area moments just like that. Do you invite a friend working through their alcoholism to a Christmas party where alcohol will be served? Do you just not serve the drinks? Maybe your child qualifies to play in a soccer tournament during a Sunday morning church service. Do you allow them to play? Do you go? You find that someone in your company has been stealing product and selling it to keep their family out of debt. Reporting them would surely hurt their family's situation. Do you report it? Do you lie to your friend about him being a good singer and fake his solo during the performance to save the relationship? Life is chock full of gray areas. Those ethically tricky things where there is no clear right or wrong. We might not be as concerned with food offered to an idol, but it's not so hard to understand the situation of these early Christians. What do you do with the gray areas? Thankfully, Paul has an answer for those Corinthian Christians, albeit a peculiar one. If I were to summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. Air on the side of love. Paul seems to be writing specifically to the Corinthian Christians that see no problem in eating food offered to the idols. He sees these more mature Christians as the ones who possess a sort of knowledge and insight. He knows that they are aware that eating the food is no big deal on its own because these idols aren't real. They're not God. Paul knows full well that these Christians can walk right in the pagan temple, grab a juicy steak from off the pedestal, eat it, and walk away with no salvific issue. Clean conscience. Like I mentioned before, that's not the problem. The problem is the effect of how one's personal action can have consequences on someone else. Someone that hasn't quite reached the same conclusion and maturity. Don't be a stumbling block, he says. I find it interesting that before Paul says anything to Corinthians about the food, he cautions them against their knowledge, saying that everyone has knowledge. That's not the problem. The problem is when knowledge puffs you up so that you're unable to love. In fact, the one who loves their neighbor can love God and is known by God. This is the whole underpinning of Paul's word to the Corinthian church. Knowledge of truth is useless without love. Err on the side of love. Paul shifts the focus away from trying to find who is right and wrong in their understanding of food offered to idols. It's a gray situation. You could walk in circles about how to handle it. Instead, he offers this advice. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. The answer to finding the right angle in this conundrum is the one that loves the neighbor most. Paul suggested that the option that caused less sin in the community would always be the right one, regardless of who is right and wrong in their understanding. Knowledge puffs up 
while love builds up. Friends, I would venture to say the same thing is true for us today. There are some clear places where black and white thinking is okay. Murder is wrong. Embezzling money is wrong. Cheating on your significant other is wrong. Always cut and dry. But Paul is pushing the envelope here. He is saying that knowledge without love is also wrong. In these gray areas, it isn't enough to make a decision based on the facts alone. Knowledge of God isn't enough for salvation. Love is also required. Why then should we be surprised when that same logic applies elsewhere? Here's where it's tricky. The right and loving thing is not always easy to see. It's not always clear. It's not always comfortable. It might require us to swallow our pride and not flex the fact that we know more than the other party. It might require us to say sorry for an argument that we didn't begin. It might require us to submit to an authority that we don't respect for the sake of keeping the peace in our community. On the other hand, it might require us to speak out. It might require us to stand up for something. Knowledge is easy. Love is messy. But we must remember the gospel to which we are called through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was through love that Christ died for us, those at war with God. Knowledge alone would have have us still in a state of separation from him, because that's what we deserve. We know that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by his love on the cross, we have these words also. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Thank goodness God did not leave us in his knowledge, but saved us by his love. Sometimes love is hard to define for us, though, isn't it? It is for me, at least, especially considering what Christ did for us. You can't really come near that type of love. On top of that, love can be so contextual, so variable. Maybe this will help. That church that I mentioned earlier, the one that was weighing how to show the passion of the Christ. Here's how they found a loving solution to their gray area. Rather than showing the movie in church and alienating some members of the congregation, they chose to simplify the equation. They bought quite a few copies of the DVD and encouraged people to to watch it with their families or small gatherings. They understood that people might struggle saying no to coming to church, even if it made them uncomfortable. But saying no or laying low with a small group gathering is much easier to do. Those that felt it was important to watch were able to, and those that were sensitive to it were able to opt out. It's not a perfect solution, but it was a loving one. And that's what Paul is suggesting to us today. Not to seek the most perfect solution based on our knowledge, but to seek the most loving one. And that can only be done by listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is only right, my friends, that we strive to operate in this love in the gray moments of our lives. To answer my earlier question, what do we do in the gray areas of life? Well, we err on the side of love by the grace of God, and we go from there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.